Welcome to a special episode of the Science and the City podcast, presented by the Sackler Institute for Nutrition Science at the New York Academy of Sciences. I'm your host, David Hoffman. As regular podcast listeners know, the Sackler Institute is all about partnership, finding ways to bring together all of the many disparate kinds of groups that have a stake in how, what, and why the world eats. From nonprofit organizations to for profit companies, from academics to business people to policymakers, so that we can better understand the science behind human nutrition and use science to better feed the world. This is the first of two episodes of the podcast that will be exploring the amazing depth and breadth of work being done by some of those partners. Let's start with three quick points that everyone in the Sackler Institute family would agree on. First, for all that we still don't know about nutrition, we know more now than at any time in history. And we've never had a greater consensus about what the most important challenges are that still remain. Here's Dr. Manfred Eggsdorfer, Senior Vice President and Head of Research and Development for DSM Nutritional Products. There has not been a time in recent decades when so many people agreed on what needs to be done. So the uh, window uh, for nutrition, the opportunity for nutrition is right now open. Second, these challenges are as big and complex as they are important. And so solving them is going to require teamwork. No single organization is going to get there alone. Here's Dr. Stuart Craig, Director of Scientific and Regulatory Affairs at DuPont Nutrition and Health. A lot of the problems that we face today require solutions that we can't just do by ourselves. So uh, I think we have to keep an open mind about what you're trying to accomplish, uh, how quickly you need to accomplish it, how, how robust you want the solution to be, and who uh, you can work with together to, to get you where you need to be. It's a way of trying to create a win-win situation, really, where um, we're not uh, developing uh, new products and ideas in a vacuum, that uh, we want what we develop to be successful in the marketplace. And one of the most important things we can do is talk to our customers about what they need. And third, moving nutrition science forward and tackling malnutrition worldwide are as good for for-profit companies as they are for nonprofit organizations. Doing good in the world can actually improve your bottom line. Here's Dr. Daniel Greenberg, Director of Global Research and Development and Nutrition Fellow at PepsiCo. Part of what we do in terms of developing our product portfolio is to try to look at what types of foods can fit into a, a nutritious and healthful diet and at the same time uh, help the company's bottom line. So if we're making foods that not only taste good and are appealing, but also have nutritious value, then it's a win-win. One area where many companies and organizations from all across the nutrition community are looking to make an impact is in the better distribution of micronutrients. By volume, the vast majority of what we eat is in some form of one of three kinds of macronutrients, carbohydrates, fats, or proteins. There are hundreds of other chemical ingredients in foods, though. 
Some of the most important of these fall under the category of micronutrients, vitamins and minerals. To learn more about micronutrients and how they work in our body, check out episode 2 of our A Thought for Food series of podcasts, entitled Tiny Amounts, which aired on the Science in the City series in February of 2012. But for now, suffice it to say that we don't need very much of these in our diet, but we can get very, very sick if we don't get as much of them as we need. Here's Dr. Petra Klassen, a scientific advisor at Nestle. So currently, there are over 2 billion people, that is roughly uh, 30% of the world population, that does suffer from micronutrient deficiencies. So we consider this as such an important public health issue that we want to target that. One example of a micronutrient that is often lacking in people worldwide is vitamin D, which is instrumental in several crucial bodily processes, including maintenance of healthy bones and of the immune system. Lack of it can result in problems including osteoporosis in older people and a similar condition in children called rickets. And it's surprising that we're lacking in vitamin D because it's the one vitamin that our bodies can produce on their own. Here's Rowena Pullen, Vice President for R&D for the Supplements franchise within the Consumer Health Division of Pfizer Pharmaceuticals. The most common way that you get vitamin D is you go out in the sunshine and it's synthesized through sunlight on your skin. But we're all getting very good at um, when we go out in the sun wearing sun cream, and that actually blocks the ability of the skin to synthesize vitamin D. And then in addition, we, we tend to spend more and more time indoors, and glass and things like that also block um, sunshine, uh, you know, block the ability of the skin to create vitamin D. So that's becoming a nutritional gap uh, in the United States and, and in many countries worldwide where you might not expect it. And, and, and vitamin D is you know, being shown to have increasing importance in bone health, muscle health, you know, all sorts of different areas. Another good example of a common micronutrient problem is deficiency of iron, which can cause blood conditions like anemia. Here's Dr. Helena Pachon from the Food Fortification Initiative at Emory University in Atlanta. Um, the prevalence of anemia has been very high all over the world, including developed countries, which is unusual because most nutritional problems nowadays of, due to deficiencies are found in developing countries. But even in developed countries, the prevalence of anemia remains high. Specifically, women of childbearing age, a large proportion of their anemia will most likely be due to iron deficiency. And new research shows that the problems caused by iron deficiency can go much further, even affecting the proper function of the brain. Here's Dr. Greg Reinhardt, Vice President of Research and Nutrition for a nonprofit called the Mateel Institute. It's known that iron deficiencies in young children can result in um, long-term impairment of cognitive function. In short, the, the quality and the quantity of information that their brains are able to process. The primary dietary sources of micronutrients are fruits and vegetables, which is a big reason why so many public health campaigns are aimed at getting people to eat more of them. Fresh vegetables are expensive, though, and they don't last long, so they rarely make up much of the diet of the world's poor. And even if you're dealing with people who could afford it, 
Getting someone to change their diet is a tricky business. Here's Dr. Pachon again. What do you want people to do to change what they eat? Eat different foods, eat less of their food. That's really hard for us to do, and, and as public health people, it's, it's, it's something that's quite difficult for us to be successful in, in getting people to change their behaviors. With these challenges and such high stakes for the intake of micronutrients, it's no surprise that a big percentage of the nutrition community is working to find new and better ways to get them into people's diets. It's generally accepted among public health experts worldwide that micronutrient deficiency can be tackled by finding the right combination of three strategies, supplementation, fortification, and diversification. And the Sackler Institute's various partners are at the forefront of new research into each of these. Let's start with supplementation, which means taking vitamins and minerals as pills or powders as standalone additions to your diet. Now, some recently published studies that got quite a lot of press have shown that the long-term benefits of mass distribution of multivitamins to the general public, which is to say, those who are not suffering from micronutrient deficiency diseases, are harder to pin down than many had suspected. But the value of micronutrient supplements to those who need them the most is unquestioned, and there are many in the nutrition community who are working to make them better and more widely available. Here's Ms. Pullen again, who, as I noted before, works at Pfizer, the manufacturer of some of the most popular over-the-counter multivitamin supplements in the world. You know, as more people run studies and more people learn, and they share that learning, it's important that we move our thinking with the new and emerging scientific data. And I think you're seeing more and more rigor being built into how we actually evaluate the benefits of things like dietary supplements. You know, we all know that it can be very difficult to eat all the things you need to eat to fill all your nutritional needs from food alone. And so it becomes, that's where we think things like supplements play a role in helping consumers to fill those nutritional gaps fundamentally. Other new studies are showing very good effects of providing multi-micronutrient supplements to children, especially in the developing world. Here's Dr. Reinhardt again from the Mateel Institute. In that study, we looked at two uh, age groups, uh, infants and toddlers. And the infants were given a multiple micronutrient powder that was mixed in their foods as a complementary food at, at home. And the toddlers were given... Um, powder that was incorporated into the midday meal that was provided at the Aganwadi Center. And Aganwadi Center is like a, a national preschool program throughout India. We are in the very early stages of analyzing uh, the results. What we're seeing is, is that uh, the toddlers that uh, w receive the multiple micronutrients, they have improved iron status. We're also getting some very early indications that certain elements of growth and development are also improved. Um, linear growth appears like there might be an improvement in certain aspects of social-emotional development and language skills are also improved. These improvements appear to be related to the quality of early learning opportunities they have, and we need to do a lot more work on this, but right now the, the, the data is very, very promising. There's a big challenge, though, to the effectiveness of micronutrient supplements. And that's that, like trying to change someone's diet, they require people to change their behavior, to remember to take a daily pill. This is one of the reasons why many in the nutrition community 
are looking to micronutrient fortification, which means adding micronutrients to the things people are eating anyway before they come to market. This is most often done with cereal grains, wheat, rice, and corn, the inexpensive, ubiquitous staples of most people's diets, especially the poor. Here's Dr. Pachon again from the Flower Fortification Initiative. With cereal grains, we have an opportunity because they are consumed in large amounts by large um, proportions of the global population. In other words, most of the world either eats um, food made with wheat flour, with maize flour, or with rice. So what we do, we go to a country and we say, well, your, your people are eating, you know, combinations of these or, or one of these in, in large amounts. If we add vitamins and minerals to them, they don't have to change their behavior because they're going to continue eating those foods, but they'll get the added vitamins and minerals without them even knowing. There are a couple of great success stories in the history of fortification of staple foods. The first, and perhaps most famous, is iodized salt. Iodine deficiency, like the iron deficiency we mentioned earlier, can cause serious problems with cognitive function. Now that it's routinely added to table salt, though, iodine deficiency is all but unknown in the developed world. Another is the addition of folic acid, aka folate, a form of vitamin B9, to wheat flour. The deficiency of folate in pregnant women is shown to cause a kind of very serious birth defect in the neural tube, which is an embryo's developing brain and spine. Some of these birth defects um, are fatal, um, or um, cause permanent disabilities. These children um, go on to have, need to require surgeries and um, different types of rehabilitation services throughout their lives. Studies from multiple countries, at least 10 or 15, including the U.S., Canada, South Africa, Chile, have shown that if they add folic acid to flour, in countries like Chile and U.S., it's wheat flour, in a country like South Africa, it's both wheat and maize flour. If we add folic acid, we'll, we will see um, steady and consistent declines in the number of babies born with birth defects. And so we can immediately have this tremendous impact on uh, the lives of the women, the lives of their children, the lives of their families. The reason this works so well is that it ensures good folate levels in women at the time of conception, whether or not they were planning to conceive. Well, for women to have adequate status when they conceive, given that most women around the world get pregnant without planning, um, they need to have good folic status going into pregnancy. So we need to get women of childbearing age getting enough folic acid in their diet so that they will have good folate status when they do conceive. So there have been studies that have looked at what is the cost-benefit of adding folic acid versus what society gets in return. And what society gets in return is by saving on these children who have these consistent or persistent number of surgeries and, and rehabilitation sessions, we save a lot more if we add folic acid to our food supply than what we're going to spend as a society in, in helping to take care of these children. Many groups are now looking at whether taking a similar approach with other micronutrients that are frequently lacking in pregnant women would also be beneficial. Here's Dr. Reinhardt again from the Mateel Institute. Yes, there was a, a study undertaking in West Bengal at the Panagata uh, Tea Estate. This involved reproductive age women between 18 and 50 years of age. 
and they were provided one of two uh, dietary treatments, um, either iodized salt or salt that was doubly fortified with iodine and iron. In, in this particular population, they consumed about 10 grams of salt per day, and at that intake of salt, the doubly fortified salt um, gave an additional 7 milligrams of iron to these women. So this study was set up to really look at, at, at three, three different outcomes. One was, can we improve iron status in this population if we provided doubly fortified salt? And the answer is yes, iron status is definitely improved. That was what we had hoped for. We expected that. So there was no giant aha there. Uh, the other two questions we were asking were, can we improve economic productivity? Um, and right now at this point, that, that question's not been clearly answered. We still have some more research to do on that, and we'll learn more about that as we continue to do the work. And the third question was, can we um, improve cognitive functioning in women that, that are iron insufficient? And the data is very early, and there's been a couple abstracts presented on it, but it appears that, yes, um, Cognitive abilities are improved in adult women, and that's a little bit of a new paradigm. In the past, I think it's been felt if, if there was nutrient um, deficiencies, that if there was impairment in cognitive function, that that may not always be reversible, and it's a, this study suggests that there at least can be some partial recovery of functioning if iron's provided. This, this research is being done with a very large collaborative group um, Cornell University, McGill University in Montreal, Canada, uh, Penn State, uh, University of uh, Oklahoma, um, a Micronutrient Initiative, the Matil Institute, the Child in Need uh, Institute out of Calcutta, India, um, just a very large, large collaborative group. And, and things are, are really progressing very well. Um, we're hoping to learn a lot more over the next six months as the data is fully summarized and, and interpreted. An even more ambitious study to show how some of these strategies can help women and their children is now being conducted in Vietnam. Well, this, this study involves uh, women, you know, reproductive age, and it's in, being undertaken in Thai Nguyen, which is north of Hanoi in northern Vietnam. We screened 5,500 women. I believe there was 5,011 that were eligible to enroll in the study and they consumed uh, one of three treatments, uh, an iron folic acid um, supplement, a folic acid supplement, supplement alone which served as the control, and a 15 um, vitamin mineral multiple micronutrient um, um, treatment. And these women had to consume the, the, one of the three treatments for at least 12 weeks prior to conceiving. And our statistical analysis uh, power testing suggests that we need to have at least 1,650 women become pregnant and give uh, birth to a live child um, during the course of the study. And we're on target to reach that um, sometime in midsummer here, and we'll wrap up the field portion in September of 2014. We're going to measure gestation length. We're going to measure um, hemoglobin levels in, in the infants at birth and at three months. Um, we're going to measure maternal iron stores and also look at morbidity and, and other, other outcomes like that. This should help inform us on whether there's a benefit of providing um, vitamins and minerals preconception as opposed to waiting until after a mother becomes pregnant and goes in for her first uh, prenatal visit. 
in, in many parts of the world, especially in developing countries, that first prenatal visit oftentimes does not occur until a third or halfway through gestation. And at that point in time, uh, if the mother goes into pregnancy um, with nutritional inadequacies, there's a very good chance that that fetus is going to be also nutrient uh, depleted, and, and there's high likelihood that there could be some developmental abnormalities that could occur. And maybe they aren't real obvious at birth, but there could be things such as cognitive impairment that could follow that child for the remainder of its life, um, things like that we just don't fully understand yet. So this is a very, very large undertaking. The success of fortification strategies like these has led many companies to look for new ways to bring micronutrient-rich foods successfully to market. Often, this involves studying the diet of the people you're trying to reach, and then developing products that fit in with their tastes and their needs. Here's Dr. Klassen from Nestle again. We look at the local um, lack in the diets, and if there are deficiencies of public health importance, that's the first step we to, to take in our strategy. And then we try to understand how that is matched by products which are reaching the respective category and uh, that are also consumed at a relatively frequent basis to make sure that people basically will ingest also the uh, specific one. One of the products Nestle has developed is a fortified bouillon, or concentrated cooking broth, aimed at fighting micronutrient deficiency in West Central Africa. Central West Africa, we basically have our Maggi products, condiments and bouillons. They are used to basically cook with local healthy ingredients uh, meals. And these bouillons are fortified uh, with iodine, and we have also now starting um, uh, fortification with iron. Similarly, the Japanese food company Ajinomoto has been developing a micronutrient-rich product that can be stirred into a local kind of corn porridge called cocoa, which is often used as the first solid food for infants in Western Africa. They call it Cocoa Plus. Here's Dr. Takeshi Kamura, their corporate vice president for research and development and a member of their board of directors. It's tasty, it's, you know, it's, it has a sweet taste, and it, you sprinkle it onto the corn porridge, so the children love the taste, actually. And so it is very well accepted by the children, and yet it's nutritious. So, and I think uh, mothers who are giving it to their children uh, are seeing very, very quick results, it seems. And uh, so uh, we are just test marketing at the moment, but uh, it seems to be getting very good results. The Matil Institute has been working in Guatemala, a country with one of the highest levels of malnutrition in the world, to develop a product to fight micronutrient malnutrition in children. They came up with a fortified version of an atoll, which is a kind of hot beverage made of corn, that they call chispuditos, which is local slang for clever children. In the four plus years of work that we have uh, with this fortified atoll, has shown consistently a, an improvement in hemoglobin levels, a decrease in the incidence of anemia. We get improvements in linear growth. Um, also with that, over time, we, we see improvements in height for AIDS Z-scores, and invariably, in both in controlled settings and community-based settings, we'll see uh, marked decreases in morbidity. In particular, uh, acute diarrhea 
and acute respiratory infections will go down after being provided chispaditos. We feel that a lot of this uh, growth benefit and the decrease in morbidity is associated with the uh, zinc that comes in through the fortified uh, chispaditos. The third method of improving people's intake of micronutrients after supplementation and fortification is diversification, meaning encouraging people to eat a wide variety of different kinds of food, which each contain different levels of various micronutrients. Research in this direction has led to the discovery that even within the same species, say wheat or rice, there are varieties with sometimes wildly different levels of vitamins and minerals. This inspired PepsiCo, among others, to ask if new strains of popular staple foods could be developed that maximize these positive differences. Here's Dr. Greenberg again. Uh, let me give you an example of one kind of research which really has to do with different levels of helpful antioxidants and other phytonutrients in oats. And this is some work being done by Yifang Chu, and he's a terrific researcher. He's out in our Barrington office. And he looked at different strains of oats. And I have to tell you, when I looked at this at first, it's like, who even knew? But oats are sort of like apples, and you have Macintosh apples and Cortland apples, and oats have different strains as well that are just as unique and distinct, but that most of us don't really, you know, know anything about. It's all in the manufacturing process. And what he wanted to look at was, do different strains of oats actually have different levels of the um, uh, evanthromides and other phytonutrients that are um, most important for their heart-healthy um, capabilities? And he did some really terrific research looking both in terms of in vitro work and some work in terms of clinical outcomes in people and found that specific strains of oats were actually had a lot more of the healthy antioxidants. And um, now we're trying to look at our manufacturing processes and our sourcing processes so that we can use more of these helpful types of oats. With all these exciting developments, there are a couple of important overarching points to remember. First, that eating a balanced diet is still the best way to eat healthily. Here's Ms. Pullen. You know, I would tell you that I, I would always encourage somebody that if they possibly can, they should get all their micronutrients and all their, all their dietary needs from food. That's clearly the best place. Um, but it's just really hard to do that. If you, if you actually look at you know, how, how you could get all the, if we just focus on the micronutrients, because that's where multivitamins tend to focus, the amount of food you would have to eat in many cases is quite significant. And then that brings other challenges with it. Um, and, and in terms of, you know, feeling full or even just calories and, and those kind of things. So it's just, it just becomes really hard to do that every day. Um, from a diet standpoint, I think it also is just very hard to do it from a lifestyle standpoint um you know many of us are running around i i know i eat on the run sometimes that means i don't necessarily eat uh the most healthy things on the run um so even with the best one in the world even though i'm trying to meet as many of my dietary needs as i as i can from food i feel like i don't do the best job of that each and every day 
And so for me, uh, a supplement like a multivitamin is a good way of making sure that I do a better job each and every day. Second, that real change in what people eat only happens with the willing participation of the food industry. Here's Dr. Kimura, followed by Dr. Greenberg. Well, I think the, this, the Coco project, uh, we got, regard this not as a sort of a, you know, a corporate social responsibility type program, but more in terms of actual sustainable uh, BOP business, really. And I think unless you can really get it into a sustainable business type operation, then, you know, you have to keep on putting money into it. So it's not very sustainable, I think. This relationship between research and commerce is a complicated one. It's true that it's difficult to engage industry in research projects that don't have a possible commercial application. But at the same time, once that possible application is demonstrated, industry has the drive and resources to go into channels of inquiry that are perhaps beyond the scope of the academic community, but can yield important new data about food and nutrition. Here's Dr. Greenberg again. First of all, NIH is never going to look at whether two different strains of oats have different um, antioxidant capacity. That's just not something they're going to fund. So who else is going to do it but industry? And yes, it's with an eye towards making profits, but it's also with an eye towards being good corporate citizens. And so we have this important dance where academic research, the work of nonprofits and policy advocates, and the research and development of new products by the food industry are all really part of the same system and all need to work together in order to address some of these crucial issues. The key to this, the glue that holds this diverse community together, is science. In order to be truly effective, any new programs, new interventions, or new products need to be firmly based on good science. Here's Ms. Pullen again. And I think just continuing to make sure that we encourage the entire um, category to be data-driven, to make sure that the claims that we do make to consumers and the benefits that we commun communicate to consumers are based on good science, um, to make sure that consumers are, are really getting products that do help them and that they understand what those, those benefits could be. This podcast has been a production of the Sackler Institute for Nutrition Science and Science and the City, not-for-profit programs of the New York Academy of Sciences. To learn more about the Sackler Institute, visit us on the web at nyas.org slash do slash nutrition and nutritionresearchagenda.org. We welcome your comments about this or any Science and the City program to scienceandthecity at nyas.org. 